So far in this book of Romans, uh, we've, I'm going to give you the super fast speed version of catching up to chapter 4. Chapter 1, God says the gospel here, the good news. Chapter 1, he says it comes to people who aren't Jews who so badly need it because they've been violating the Lord and it shows in their life because they love things that grieve the Lord. Chapters 2, he says it happens to you people, the Jews also. The Jews are a group that God made through the great, 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 great granddaddy Abraham and said, I'm coming to you and I'm going to make out of you a people, a nation. He made the Jewish nation out of it. And then later on, he gives them an obedience code. And they then took that obedience code, which was designed to weigh them down, and that they still needed further forgiveness. They needed forgiveness from the Lord. They needed a redeemer, and that they're not good in themselves. They took that obedience code and instead used it as a stake to beat people with and as a state of self-righteousness, something that was supposed to bring you down and make you wait on the Lord, they started showing off to one another. So, well, look, I can lift the weight higher than you can. And so Paul's spirit, no, you can't. Non-Jewish, Jewish person, no one is good. No one is righteous. There are none that seek God. There are none righteous. Not one. And so then the good message comes out. Hansel brought this to us about four weeks ago. Giving you salvation as a free gift. An amazing free gift through Jesus Christ and what he did. And it's so incredible. He goes back in the argument. He goes, now I just want to make clarity that this is a gift given to both the Jewish people and the non-Jewish people. And that is in correlation to the very beginning promise that God gave Abraham. And that gift is going to be uh, not because there is inherent worth and goodness within you, but because goodness will be given to you from outside of you through Messiah someday. That's the catch-up of chapters 1 to 4 so far in Romans. And so it rolls into our text today, kind of continuing on this theme. And really, our text today is a continuation of last week's. And so last week, we cut it up and talked a lot about righteousness and justification. Righteousness being a sense of worth and acceptance, the reason by which a person is acceptable to God. Justification is the process by which you are made righteous. How did you become acceptable to God? And we learned last week and the week before, there's this word in there, it means to be spoken of, right? To be counted, but not like an, a strict accounting sense. Actually, a, a, a new created, let it be. It's a declaration by God about you. You are declared righteous, declared acceptable, declared worthy. Not because he looked at you and said, ooh, that one's kind of good. No, it wasn't in there. Because if anyone would qualify that, great, 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 great grandfather Abraham would. Right, and that's, chapter, that's verse 1 of chapter 4. Even he had no confidence and gained nothing by his flesh. So never does God count you righteous by looking in you and go, ooh, that's pretty good. That's better than the neighbor. No, that never ever happens. What he means by counting means he looks upon us in our unrighteousness, because that's, that's what I am, that's what you are, that's whatever person is. And he says, that one is now righteous. And it's not a fraudulent covering. It's not faking it. It actually is because he's the speaker. God speaks things into existence, right? He said, let there be light, and there was light. So when God speaks, like gizmize something, it is that. So when he says, you are righteous, you are righteous, 100%. He then goes on to tell us how he did that because there's all kinds of means behind it. That's why Romans is so powerful is it's not simply saying the things God's saying, what I will do, but he says how I will do it. All kinds of uh, amazing, helpful pieces of that, that that would be done eventually through Jesus. So we are counted righteous or we'll never be righteous at all. 
counted or not, you always want to be counted. You never want to be self-assessed. If you self-assess, you fail. If you say, God, you perfectly, self you perfectly assessed me, you'll fail. Because he's already said, I did assess you. I wrote a lot about it. You should probably read it. Um, I didn't stutter. It's all over the book. From Jesus' ministry in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, all the way through Romans, the rest of this, it's there. In fact, it's in the Old Testament. We fail the test. We are not worthy. We are not acceptable to God. But he says, but you can be. Let me speak it over you. Let me call you. Let me reckon you. Let me credit to you as righteousness through Jesus. That catches us up and brings us to our passage in verse 16. I kind of struggle with how to break up today's passage because there's just so many amazing goodies in it. All right. And there's goodies in it from today's passage that I'm not going to touch because we touched them last, last week. And so in case I don't hit it, um, you can go back and watch the video of it and see where we covered those things about accounting and righteousness that were there in last week's. But today's passage, after I studied the whole thing, after I put all my sermon notes together, all of a sudden I kind of had this epiphany at the end. Like this is a really unique passage, maybe uh, a spot in scripture that I've never seen before that contains a whole set of things. Okay, here's what it is. Cross City Church, that's our name. Our denomination is called, get ready for this, we call it the EFCA, means the Evangelical Free Church of America, a really weird name. Back when the Molesberries and the Burns were part of North Point Evangelical Free Church, which we just called North Point, it was called Corona Evangelical Free Church. Nothing sounds creepier, I've done it, I've been in the parking lot of a Home Depot. I'm having this conversation with a dude, and I want to invite him to our church. And I said, hey, why don't you show up and come to our church? He goes, oh, yeah, what church is that? Conversation's going good. And I said, um, it's Corona, uh, Corona Free Church. And he goes, Corona, like, I said, he goes, what is Corona Free? I said, well, it's Corona Evangelical Free Church. And he's like, the, the shift of like, Ding, 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 cult, ding, 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 you know. So we're like, no, 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 it's, it's this really great church. Meanwhile, he's like getting the car, closing the door. So we uh, changed our name to North Point, so we just called North Point Church. The denomination is fantastic. What does evangelical free mean? It comes from this, back in the 1500s. There really is just one big church franchise going on. It's called the Catholic Church. And uh, they, they solved a bunch of problems for some theological reasons by keeping the Bible in a language that no one knew, unless you were trained by them, okay? So you're hanging out up there in England, you're speaking English, Irish, or something like that, and you want to know about the Bible, well, you got to go to your priest, because you can't read the thing. So you got to go there, and then they'll tell you what's in there. Trust me. Tell you what's in there, right? And so for years, the, lang- the Bible was kept out of the language of people. Well, then by God's providence in the 1500s, a whole pile of priests who then go to seminaries and actually can read Greek and Hebrew are reading it, and they're like, what, 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 what? You know, and and so there's a whole, a slight what being drifted over the church of God at that time, right? And a bunch of them banded together and said, hey, let's reform this. Let's go back to our roots because we've kept the language, the Bible, out of the people's language and out of ours, but now that we're reading it, what we're saying is not consistent with it, so let's let them read it for themselves. And so let's reform the church. Well, then the church, the Catholic Church at that time said, hey, we don't like that, you protesters, you protestants, Protestants, that's where the name comes from, or in some languages, you evangelicals, okay? We don't like that. And so you had the Protestant Reformation in the 1500s where the church 
cracks in half. Those who believe that the word of God is 66 books and the message is salvation by grace through faith alone in Christ alone according to scriptures alone to the glory of God alone. And then a whole other pile that said not really. It's not to God's glory alone. It's not in scripture alone. It's not by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. It's pluses in all those categories. You have this big rift. Protestant Reformation. And up in the Norwegian, Swedish, Scandi countries up in there, you had these governmental churches. They were Catholic governmental churches, like Swedish Catholic Church. Well, then, as those churches said, no, 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 we're going to the scriptures, they were no longer governmental churches. They were free churches, and they were no longer Catholic. They were evangelical. So you had the evangelical free church of Sweden and the evangelical free church of Finland, those kind of things. And they started sending missionaries over like to this new place called like Minnesota, right? And so a bunch of them landed up there because it was cold. They all like, they're all bright white and cold. So they all went up there and they started this and eventually all those clustered together and became the Evangelical Free Church of America. And about 60 years ago, they're like, hey, you know what? No one's speaking those languages. Maybe we should speak English. Now we have the EV Free Church. Okay, that's, that's our church's denominational history. And it's f- really formed around these things called the solas, right? So in our passage today, we have the solas, the five pillars of theology. So this is what struck me at the end of all my preaching notes. So I have two sets of preaching notes. Love me anyway. It won't be extra long. But you have these solas that show up. Number one, sola fide. So these are five statements. You should know these. You should know these. When you're helping your friends find churches, the churches should teach this way. They don't have to have these words on their website. (laughs) We don't either. But these should be the things behind what's going on. Sola fide, which means by faith alone. So in our passage, if you take a look, you look at that passage here, verse 16. That is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace. So our second piece after sola fide is sola gratia. So it's Latin makes us all feel fancier. Okay, and so depending on the second word, they change the first word a little bit. You can just call it a sola. It, you'll totally get a fine. All your neighbors will be impressed, okay? So by faith alone, in grace alone, our third piece is by scripture alone. So this is all the way through here in verse 16, 17, 18, 23. According to the promise, the promise, the promise, it's written, it's written, it's spoken, right? So we go to the scripture alone. The fourth one, Sola Deo Gloria, solo deo, soli Deo Gloria, which is to the glory of God alone. So in order of our text today, if you look this up online, you'll find some different orders. I'm just putting in the order that happens to be in our text. All these are in our text today. So in, chapter, in, in verse 20, um, we, see, we see it said there, as far as what Abraham was doing. It says, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God and to himself, no verily to God alone, right? He gave glory to God, not to anybody else. Glory to God alone. And our first, our fifth peace is, peace is, peace is, solus Christus, verse 25, goes on to break this out. 24, 25, but for our sakes also it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification, Christ alone. So these five sit there as statements and summary of the gospel. It's a way you could actually summarize the whole process in Reformation. It's the way we can summarize the grand scope of theology and what the gospel is. 
And so this term solus is super important. How important is it? Well, some people name their whole businesses off this. So uh, you're welcome. I didn't ask you guys. But, but here's, here's, why, here's why I point out uh, Corey and Angela's website, because they, they have a business. But we are, we are gospel people through and through. We don't contain the gospel of Jesus Christ and Jesus to some little corner of our life, and then we have real life around it. It goes everywhere. And so people in our church express this in different ways. We all work in different fields. Uh, we were celebrating a field last night where the gospel goes into protecting people. Other people of us, we've been having discussions about the gospel going to places. The gospel goes into the workplace. The gospel goes into film. Um, I think it's really cool you guys name your company that. All right. So the rest of our passage today is uh, a breakdown of sola fide. Sola fide is really fleshed out in this passage. And I invite you guys to make sure you have your Bibles open to follow along as we go through this passage. I would encourage you to remember the solas. How many solas are there? Five. Okay. Grace, faith, Christ, Scripture, glory of God. Grace, faith, Christ, Scripture, glory of God. Very important. Today is mostly a breakout of sola fide. So please turn your Bibles to verse 16. Let me just pray as we go forward. Father, we thank you for your word. I pray for the power of your spirit for all of us as we sit at your feet and listen that our minds would be stirred, sharpened. Uh, for some of us, we already know it. For those others of us, we've never heard of this before. For some in the room who don't know you, um, Father, I pray that you would overwhelm them with light, that they would not be able to avoid your voice, not only in information, but in call to you, and that you'd free them. Lord, I pray for all of us as we listen. I pray for me, Lord, as I would speak. Lord, may I be faithful to your word by the power of your spirit and helped in that in my weakness a man who is counted righteous by Jesus alone. In Christ's name, amen. So our first piece is this, as we go here. Faith alone is inseparable from grace alone. Faith alone is inseparable from grace alone. Look at verse 16. It says, and I'm going to give a little commentary as you read through it, so please do read. We, we always read in the Bible here to make sure I'm not telling you a lie. That's super important. If you can't see it for yourself in the text, it's junk, or it's worth a coffee afterwards, okay? Both, maybe, all right? Verse 16, that is why, that is why acceptance before God depends on faith, faith alone rather than obedient acts or works, in order that the promise of acceptance being, or being made blessed by God to Abraham, that it may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, that's, that's the ethnic celebratory Jews, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Let me read that now without my commentary. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all. The gospel of Jesus is a gospel of grace. It is a gospel of gift. The news is gift. The news is not inherent righteousness. The news is gift righteousness. Not half-paid, bonus gift, holy gift. And if it is going to be a message of grace, it has to be accessed by a certain tool. And that tool is going to be only one thing, which is faith. Not faith plus works and not just works alone. So for when we do our gospel training, we'll do another gospel workshop day in October. We would really encourage you to be there for that. If you haven't done it with us or only done it once, come with us and sharpen your ability to think through the gospel. 
One of the things we talk through when you're dealing with people in the gospel, so translate this for yourself, but translate this for your neighbor, is uh, this classic, classic thing. If you've been hanging around the church for a long time, you hear this thing, is it, gr- is, it, is it faith alone or faith in works or is it works alone? Why does it matter? It matters because of grace. So I think it's a very helpful thing when I'm talking to people about like their position with God. Um, this past week I was asking somebody what they thought about God. And they gave me an answer. The answer was nowhere close to biblical Christianity. And um, I have kind of three things I'm going to kind of look into, right? Trying to describe what's wrong with us, trying to describe what could be ours, then how that's given. Um, As we walk through with people what is wrong and what could be ours, and then how it's given, what is wrong is really simple. It's clear. It's amazingly brutal. I mean, that's why everyone hated Jesus, number one, because they didn't like what he said was, was wrong with us, that there's no goodness, no righteousness in us. And that information either deeply offends or deeply liberates. Finally, someone figured out his name is God, right? I'm not good. You're not good. So is that deeply wrong? And then there's the newness of life where we actually are owned by him. He's our king. He's our treasure. He's everything to us. But it means we lose control. We're no longer independent. We're now dependent, happily so. But that costs you everything. And for a lot of people, are like, hmm, I don't know if I like that. I like the Jesus thingy. I like the heaven thingy. I just don't like Jesus king thingy. Like, I like to be the captain of my own ship. I like to decide where treasure is found. And God goes, well, but that's part of the, that's the problem. See, that's just simply expression of what I was saying to be true about you. So those are some sense logical pieces, what's wrong and what could be. The third part, which is how you get it, that's very hard to understand in our heads. What it means to be counted righteous. What it means to look away from yourself and look to Jesus and have that counted to you. So that's why I have found it, a lot of us have found it helpful for a lot of years, to use the age-old question, I don't know where it came from, Abraham was probably asking people this in Ur, you know, if you die tonight, do you know what happened to you and why? I call it the bus question. I've asked probably most of you guys in the room this, like, we leave here, you pull out high street, what well, code bus comes through, cleans you off the road, you die, you wash up on the shore of heaven, you're on the beach there, and there's a big, there's a big wall, and there's, and there's a gate, and God's standing on the gate, and he goes, hey, am I going to let you in here and why? Okay, number one, that's not from the Bible. Okay, just clarity. That's not from the Bible. This is just a theoretical question. And you stand there going like, am I going to let you in here and why? Now, I'm listening for what they're going to say. I'm going to listen to yes, no, I don't know. Those answers, those things help me. Okay, that helps me clarity and confidence. But then I say, well, why? Or why not? Well, they say yes or no because I am good, I am bad, I didn't, it's I, right? Or they'll go, yes, because Jesus, I asked asked Jesus into my heart, I have faith in the work of Jesus, Jesus died for my sins. I'm giving a big category, Jesus alone, right? So me, or Jesus, or this third category, which is Jesus and stuff, and I, okay? And what I tell you is that accordingly, and I'm not, I'm not making this up. Uh, you can actually find it. Um, so there are two sides of perspectives on how a person is reconciled with God. The whole book of Romans is kind of referring to this. It could be you'll be let in because of you, or it could be that you'll be let in because of him. It's one of the others of those. So the issue is really important. People will tell you, God would accept me and does accept me now because of Christ. 
where they'll say God would accept me or does accept me now because of me, or a combination of the two. I would tell you that when I visit with Christians, and I do it a lot, I would say well over 60% of the Christians that I talk to give me the third answer. And I'm not, I would, I would have given you that answer for a lot of my life. I'm not making fun of people for it. I just think that we have a lot of times hard time thinking about the clarity of the gospel. And so people will tell me, well, because I put my faith in Jesus, and then they put that thing called a conjunction raft there. <laughs> and, right? And I'm waiting to hear what it is. Because so, there's some good things you could put after there about like, and he saved me my soul, and he's grown me over the, whatever. I, I'm waiting to see what's after there. But a lot of times, and I've tried. I believed in Jesus, and I've tried. I believed in Jesus. There's a great brother right now who's with Jesus, okay? And he and I are in the hospital. He was in the hospital. I was visiting him in the hospital. He had a heart issue. Eventually, he went home to be with Jesus. And I said, hey, if we switch these, these roles, and I'm in the bed, and you're standing here, we need to have the same conversation with me. I said, just for clarity in your mind, I said, Doug, question. And he goes, well, um, I put my faith in Jesus Christ, and I'm like, um, and he goes, and I've raised my kids for God's glory. I'm like, okay, okay, okay. Let's do a little bit of verbal diagnostic on that right here. We have a conjunction, and we have God does this, and we have you did this. Like, I raised my kids. He's like, oh, no, 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 no. My faith is holy in Jesus. I said, I know. I just want to get clear on it, right? So he backs out of that synchronism. He backed out of that portfolio view of why God would accept him and say, my faith alone is in Jesus Christ. I need to do that to me. I need you to do that to me in fellowship and on my deathbed. I need to do it to you. We need to make sure we're clear on it is Christ and Christ alone. Why? Because if it is not Christ and Christ alone, then it is Christ and you. Those things are called obedience or works or acts. That text tells us it is by grace alone. And if it is by grace alone, it has to be by faith alone. It can't be faith plus something. So this idea of faith plus works, it is the heart gospel, I would say, of 60% plus of evangelical Protestant people that I talk to. It is the official gospel of the Catholic Church, the Mormon Church, and all the others right? It's their official things. But then again, when I talk with my Catholic friends a lot of times, when I expose faith alone, accessing grace alone through Christ alone, a lot of them actually very much identify with that. They just aren't hearing the difference between that and the teaching that they're usually not getting, but is governing the church they're part of. So I just want to bring the gospel to them, right? So don't confuse the Catholic church with your Catholic friend. And don't confuse your Protestant friend with the Protestant gospel, right? Talk to people, Talk to people. Ask questions. Talk about, like, what have we found in Christ? Go back and forward. This passage tells us here that faith alone and grace alone are absolutely woven together inseparably. Salvation is grace. It is a gift. It is not a paycheck. As soon as, as, soon as salvation becomes a paycheck, you've lost. You don't believe in grace anymore. And if you want access to grace, and you do, I believe you do. The only way you get this is receiving, open-handed. And that even itself is a gift from God. It's a called and commanded gift of God for us to receive the grace of God by faith. Verse 17, as is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. So, so imagine this. So let's just imagine as a great king. And the great king goes and brings a poor enemy prisoner 
into his kingdom and bestows a title on him, right? Sir or prince. Um, makes him a prince and gives him riches. But that person, over time, starts ignoring the title and the promises and actually starts panicking about like the king not liking them anymore. Like the king's invited them in, titled, riches, heirship, but now the person is starting to get a little sketchy about it. Not because the king has done something different, but they just see how really unworthy they are. So they start getting a little panicky, a little fidgety, and they start worrying. And, and in that, they start, um, instead of like bringing gifts to the king and seeking the pleasure of the king as accepted by the king already, now they're unsure about it. And they start doing things that in the end, actually, end up, instead of being a gift, they're bribes to try to keep the king to keep liking them. Get the king to keep accepting them and keeping them in their spot. They were intended that those gifts were intended as gifts to, be, to bring pleasure to the king. But when the, gifts, when the intention of the gifts change, they become a bribe. Bribes are offensive to it. It's, it's foolish to think about it. Um, It'd be weird. It'd be insulting what the king has said, right? If the king has that power and says, I proclaim you an heir, I proclaim you a king, that'd be an insult to what the king has said for that person to eventually start doubting that and backing off on that. And number two, really, it's an insult to the position. As if you think that you can buy, you actually think you could keep, earn or keep that position of being a prince by giving gifts. It's It's an insult to the king and it's an insult to the position on both layers. But that's often how we as people think about our relationship with the Lord. It's how we think we get in there, that we do some things to buy him off, to buy our acceptance. And then we as believers, people who've been loved by Jesus, who've been forgiven and brought and made heirs, we forget our roots. We forget that it's always been by grace and it will always be by grace. It's always been by faith. It's always will be by faith. And we forget that. And instead of listening Honestly, it's because we nibble on the scripture so little. Instead of listening to the Lord pour out his abundant love to us, it's coming in, the, in this book, man. It's going to really start maxing out around chapters 8 and 9. God pours, gushing his love out on us, telling, come talk to me. I'm your father. You're my child. Instead of like living in the riches of that, we starve ourselves from the information of him communicating his love, and we start doubting it. And when we start doubting it, we start becoming more confident in our performance and our worth instead of what Jesus has done for us and what God has promised to us in Christ. Grace and faith are linked inseparably together. So if the supposed answer to acceptance by God includes our human or moral worth, then it is not grace, it's not a gift, it's merit, and it's yours. But the passage here is clear, it must be fully an issue of grace, gift given to us, And the only thing you do properly to a gift is receive it. Salvation and the blessing is of such a massive nature that the only thing that will bridge that gap is a gracious gift, a gracious, complete lift of God. And the only way you gain the lift of God is by putting your faith and promise in him. It's not an issue of semantics. It's worth asking your friends. Those who say they belong to God, ask them how it happened. How to get that way. What's the vehicle? If we're clear that they say, yeah, I want, to be, I want to belong to the Lord, then we need to talk clearly about what's the vehicle. When a person, um, in, my, in, my, in my relationship with people, that God has been drawing them to them, often first there's like this awareness, this process of them becoming aware of their sin. And then often it clicks, like, oh yeah, this is bad, right? I'll say, but then do you want him? 
Do you want him as the king of your life, the treasure of your soul? And often at first, people are like, oh, that's kind of scary, right? But the process goes through. I can think of one gentleman right now that some of you guys know. Uh, first of all, he denied the fall. Then as we went along, he comes to clarity on that, but he's like not sure if he wants God, but then all of a sudden he's like, okay, I'm in. I'm totally in. I want to follow the Lord, okay? And old Scott Burns, I'm like, yeah, fist bump. Let's go dip you in some water, baptize. Let's go forward. But as time has gone along, I've come to realize, I think we need to really slow down and go, okay, so you, you want the offer of the gospel. Now let's, let's just talk clearly, how'd you get it, right? Let's talk about the payment of the gospel to give clarity to that. So I think it's helpful talking through phases. That's some of the training we'll do in October to help you think that through. But just because a person is, is earnest for God doesn't mean anything. Doesn't mean anything. How then will they get accepted by God? That then is the completeness of the gospel thinking. So it's not an issue of semantics. It's worth everything. It's an amazing um, passage to help us see the, the complete intertwining and interdependence of faith and grace. It is faith alone because it is grace alone. And if it's not grace alone, it's not the gospel. Our second piece, they've learned about sola fide. Um, grace contains rarely touched joys. This is short uh, because I'm short in this category. Romans 4.18, in hope, Abraham believed against hope, meaning he had nothing but the promise of God that he could lean on. I mean, he's wandering around a tent. He doesn't have a book in his hand. God is literally showing up to him and giving him promises. He's older than dirt. And all he's got is really just this promise. That's it, right? So in hope against hope, he hopes that he should become the father of many nations, verse 18, as he has been told, so shall your offspring be. Here's my point in this, and it's simple, but I invite you on a journey with me in this. Um, I think it's interesting to see the motivation of Abraham. I think it's really interesting to see the motivation of Abraham. When we think of acceptability towards God, I would say mostly me and my friends and the people that surround me, most of us think about things like not burning, um, rest forever, visiting with loved ones, eternal joy, and those things are all true in salvation in God. But I think it's really helpful, and I just, I, just, I just toss this out into your arena for you to think about. And I'm just telling you because I really have a lot to think about in this category, so therefore I'm not going to preach it very much. But what are the promises that Abraham got that he was really excited about? There is the promise of eternal life. He would be the active father. He is, he is the God of the living, not the dead. But the promises are, Abraham, you have a great name, Abraham, you'd have children as many as the sands of the sea. Abraham, you'd be the father of a nation. You'd be the father of many nations. Why is that a blessing? Why is that motivating? I think that we could really be helped in Scripture by looking over the shoulder of Abraham because I think Abraham sees things and understands things differently than we do in some of our very, very super selfish, super small ways in Western Christianity where we don't understand much about future. So I think that's why a lot of times all the things that God says in Scripture about what's going to come to us, right? That we will rule the angels. We'll judge the angels. We'll rule with them. All things are ours. And we're like, yeah, 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 but do I get to see my dad? God will give us all the blessings of getting to see and be and, and all the things that we love. But there's this whole side of future glory that I think that we can we barely even get the edge of. Um, <laughs> we were laughing last week because uh, 
the McCloskeys last week uh, fed their baby the first non-milk item ever, a little piece of ribeye. And he didn't dig it. It's like, it's just past him. Someday that boy will dig that. Someday, someday. It's just beyond him at this point. I was like, yeah, whatever that. I didn't get it. I think, I think in, in massive, massive constructed ways, we see the promises of God and we don't get it. What it means to judge angels? We're like, yeah, 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 that's cool. Uh, I think we're going to look back at that and just laugh at our emotions on that. When God says, don't sweat a cabin in the woods, don't sweat the lake, don't sweat over life and death, all things are yours, they will all be yours. And we're like, yeah, yeah, that's cool. But um, like, well, we're so small in the things we see. And so I think that we could be, have a lot of benefit in looking at Abraham. Abraham saw things in being the father of nations. I don't think it matters to most of us right now. It doesn't matter to us to, to have airship and ruling and nations. I don't think it matters to us, but it mattered to Abraham, that old guy wandering around a tent back then. It mattered to him, and he put his faith in God for those promises. And so I think, brothers and sisters, I think we could get some really big benefit from looking at a whole category of blessings that Abraham was tied into that we're not tied into mentally, and to dive down that. So there, I volley that into your court. Go chew it up in scriptures. Think about it. The whole half of blessings that we don't really value that very much. Grace contains some rarely touched blessings. Our third piece is saving faith endures. Look at verse 19 to 22. And I think this is super helpful. Super helpful. Uh, Saving faith endures. It says this, verse 19. He, that's Abraham, did not weaken in his faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. Okay, little bit aside. This is just bonus material here. Um, there is this massive theme of death in this, in this passage here, countered by a massive theme of resurrection. So I'm just going to point it out for a second. Um, we saw that Abraham believes in life from the dead. This is the first part of our passage, right? But then here, he talks about literally his word that his body is dead-like. Word necros comes from this. And the same thing when it says Sarah's womb was barren, the word is actually dead. Her, so he was as good as dead. Her womb was dead. And then it goes on later on in the passage in verse 24, Jesus was dead. 25, Jesus is resurrected from the dead. You think about the story of, of Abraham and Isaac. Remember where he was gonna, he's being called by God to kill Isaac? and he was plunging that down, and Isaac was going to be dead. Again, the only hope. He was hope against hope, and then God delivers an Isaac, and now God's calling him to kill his hope and make him dead. Abraham was convinced that death and dead was not an obstacle for God. Dead in his flesh, dead in the womb, physical death, dead didn't stop God. That's what the old man in the tent believed back in the day, and he was right. And so death is a real issue. It is not impeding God. And God working through death to resurrection actually becomes an enormous, massive theme and a tool by which God actually gives us our righteousness according to the very last verse of this chapter. Okay, so back in. So, saving faith endures. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which is good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness or the death of Sarah's womb. 
Verse 20, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully conceived that God was able to do what he had promised, and that is why his faith was counted, legismide, to him as righteousness. And that's really encouraging. Unless you've read, well, actually maybe it's not encouraging, because you go, you know what? My faith is weak. It's not very strong. So maybe I don't have my place in Jesus because I, I forget him and I doubt him all the time. So you might have a little problem in your heart. Second problem is you might have read Genesis. Um, if, you, if you haven't read Genesis and you've been a Christian for longer than six months, you need to go, you need to go knock that book out this week. Um, in Genesis, we learn some really amazing things about Abraham's faith. Uh, because when you read this thing here, if Genesis is in your mind, you go, what? Because Abraham has some really, really weak faith times, right? There's this whole Pharaoh issue. So Abraham's wandering around his yurt, and he gets down there to go into Egypt because they're having a big famine like they always do in Israel. And he goes in. So a few things about Abraham and Sarah. Apparently, uh, they're half-brother, half-sister. Didn't That one skipped my radar for a long time. But she is a little aged, but I guess she is really hot and aged. And Abraham's going like, all right, we're going down there. We know, sweetheart, you're a looker. And, um, and the problem is if we show up down there, they're going to find you a looker. They're going to kill me. So let's do this. Let's pull the sister card. It's half true. Like, let's pull the sister card. You're my sister. So they roll down there, and Pharaoh's, Pharaoh's guys are like, hmm, she indeed is an aged looker. We're going to take her. And then God brings about conviction, right? And so Abraham, his faith in God is not strong at that moment. He tells a half-truth, a lie, allows his wife to be taken off as someone else's husband, as someone else's wife. That's not strong faith at that moment. God brings him out of it, right? Brings him back in, does these other amazing things. And then, once again, she's even older yet and still apparently a looker. And, and they go up in the north part here and they run into this guy named Abimelech. And once again, Abraham goes, I'm kind of scared. Let's go that sister option again. It worked out really good the first time. Sure enough, Abimelech goes, I'll take her. And then God brings discipline upon Abimelech, comes in a vision of Abimelech, and Abimelech's like, time out, we're having a meeting. He goes, what are you doing? This is, your, this is your wife, right? So two times we see Abraham's faith not being very vibrant. Very, very clear times. And then the third one, because well, later on, if you're reading in 1 Peter chapter 3, uh, there's this blessing of calling God's daughters, like daughters of Sarah. And he said, and you'll be her daughters too if you do not fear with any fear. But then you're thinking, wait a second, Sarah did this too. Seemingly, Sarah is complicit in this. Um, but she has a moment of weakness too. As God comes and visits, and, and she's, there's an intent portion. Apparently, she's out of sight, back in subcategory two of the tent or yurt, whatever it is. And, and God's saying, you're going to have a child a year from now. And she's like, <clears throat> she laughs. And because it's hard to believe. It is. You're 90 years old. Uh, it's hard to believe you'd have a baby. It's also hard to believe be that there is angels sitting in your front room having some dinner with you. That's also hard to believe. But they said this, and it's actually probably the Lord speaking himself, that you're going to have a kid. And it was hard for her to believe, and she laughed. And we don't know if it was a little light chortle, a little nasal blow, or a full laugh, but she's laughing. And God goes, why is Sarah laughing? <laughs> like That's just an unfortunate moment when God says, why is your wife laughing? And she's back there and like, <gasps> You know, caught in the back. Um, there's moments where Abraham's faith is weak. There's moments where Sarah's faith is weak. But their faith is described as unwavering. 
It's not a description of like, man, they never doubt at any point in their life. But their faith is an enduring faith. And it comes back again and again. Think of Peter. Peter is tested so his faith might grow strong. Time and time again in the New Testament, we're talking about faith that's grown. Living faith in Jesus is not this static, picturesque, perfect thing that like comes with perfection on the day you come to know Jesus and you're called perfect in Jesus. Your faith is not made perfect in Jesus at that point in time. So it doesn't just sit here and just plateau off in the future wherever you never, never doubt. No, your faith is like the faith of a child that grows. It'll face challenges and hills and valleys and difficulties and it'll repent. It'll grow with the Lord. Here's a few things. Number one, your faith is commanded. Salvation actually is a command. It's not simply an offer. Mark 1.15 says this, the time is filled. These are the works of Jesus. The time is filled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Faith that grows. We talked about that. In this passage, also 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 3 talks about our faith growing. We see faith falters. We see faith repents through Abraham and Sarah alone. This passage here as they interacted with God. But living faith always endures. Abraham's faith didn't ultimately waver. Abraham's faith ultimately endured. It did grow strong, and in that way, it didn't waver. Brothers and sisters, the help is this. We see how Abraham, whose faith didn't waver, we saw how it struggled. We, see how, we saw how it grows through this book. We see how God forgives. We see how God restores. Your faith in Jesus Christ is living. If it is real faith, it is living. It will experience highs and experience lows. Where you, when you're in your lows, you repent and run back to him. That's not the fail of faith. That's the struggle of faith. And it's a sign of living faith. It grows throughout the duration of our life. Faith directly, not directly attached to the word of God is not salvific and does not provide access to the grace that God offers us. This is faith in the words of God, not simply hope, but faith in the very explicit promised word of God. And our final piece in this is in verses 23 to 25, saving faith is in the promising God of the Old Testament and New Testament. Take a look at verses 23 to 25. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. God could not, so the God of the Old Testament, the God of Jesus, Jesus being God, his Father being God, that God is the same God as the Old Testament. The promise of salvation through Jesus is connected to the promise that God made to Abraham. We're tapping in all the way to that. Our faith in God is not the faith in the God of the New Testament. Our faith is in the God of the entire scriptures, the God who promises and is good to those words. He achieved righteousness through Jesus in his perfect life, perfect death, perfect resurrection so he could forgive us and make us righteous. His promise is this, it will be counted to us who believe. So brothers and sisters on two levels, my friends here, if you've not put your faith in Jesus, there's the flat out promise. It will be counted to us who believe or else you will have no righteousness. Submit to Jesus and be counted righteous. Submit to Jesus and do away with your own concepts of righteousness, don't exist. Submit to him as he say, repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus. Brothers and sisters in this room, the how of how God saves is extremely important. 
you live around a bunch of people in your neighborhood, you work with a bunch of people, your friends and family. It's like this, this message for us is for us to bolster our hearts. It's always been by grace, always through faith in Christ alone, from the scripture alone to the glory of not us, but the glory of him. That's always been the message and we need to continue to dwell on that, roll in that. But it's not simply to make you feel okay and rest well and have good naps and have a good conscience when you sleep at night. He has left you on this planet to entrust this message to you. He's put souls around you. And with the reversal of Roe, there's going to be more souls around you. You need the strength of his spirit to love the souls that are around you. God is glorious. Souls are precious. They're not incidental. The measure of true Christianity is seen in Ephesians chapter 1. Faith in Lord Jesus, love for the saints. The measure of Christianity in Colossians chapter 1. Love, faith in Lord Jesus, love for the saints. The measure so often in the New Testament is love. What are we doing after we look to Jesus? Will we look to Jesus and get strong in him? And then are we ready by the power of the Spirit to turn out and love? To be, to be entrusted with this message of the grace of God by faith alone, through Christ alone, to the glory of God, God alone in the scriptures. The solas are extremely important. I would encourage you to think about them, look through this passage again, and brothers and sisters, I really encourage you, don't simply use it for mental fortification. Don't then simply use it for soul studying. Be fortified in your mind and your soul, and then by the call of the one who has made you righteous, look out and cherish by the power of the Spirit the souls that are around you that don't know Jesus and the souls that do know Jesus, and make them look to the grace of God. Bring clarity to them. Take them to this passage. Let them see the message of the gospel. Father, we pray that you please be with us in thinking and belief, and I pray that you'd be with us in love, that we'd be people who delight in this grace, and that we'd be people who would delight to speak of faith in Christ who is superior to all things and who speaks perfectly in the scriptures, that we might give glory to you both in our words and from our life as our great father Abraham did, who was a man saved by grace through faith, through a future Messiah according to your promises. We love you. Pray that you'd be with us, Lord, even as we finish in these last songs of praise to your name. Christ's name. Amen.